Well, it's great to be here at Lake Mary. I always love coming uh, and being a part uh, of this congregation, uh, and it's really fun. So, OJ, thank you for your kind words. And as OJ mentioned, we are um, in the second week of the series on rhythm, where we're looking at uh, sacraments and the spiritual disciplines, and in particular, how they help us um, in our quest to grow in our relationship with God. So today we're going to be talking about baptism, but before we get into that, um, I teach a class uh, called the Dynamics of Spiritual Formation, and in that class we go in really deep into some of the spiritual disciplines in the first five weeks of the class, and I know there's a couple of things in there that people have found very, very helpful, and I just want to share those with you right up front as we're really at the beginning of this series that hopefully will be something you can kind of latch onto and refer to time and again as we're moving through the various spiritual disciplines. Do you ever have questions about them? What are, what are they? Why does God want us to engage in spiritual disciplines? Why are they important for us? And how do they help us grow spiritually? Uh, those are questions I have. And we're going to learn um, here throughout this uh, series and this morning uh, their importance for our life, but it's probably best to start with what is God up to? What's he trying to accomplish? And how do the spiritual disciplines play a role in that? Well, let's start there. What God's trying to accomplish is to help you and to help me and to help all of us collectively look more and love more like Jesus. That's his goal. That's what he's up to in the scriptures. It puts it this way, that we would be conformed into the image of Christ. In other words, what God's working on today is to bring you and me and all of us to look more and love more like Jesus. That's what he's up to, and uh, that's really a great thing. Now, this process of spiritual growth, the process of character formation, of growing in godliness, unfortunately, it's not automatic. But the good news is it is possible. It's something that can and does Happen. So I've, I've found that there's two kind of word pictures that will be really helpful you, to you in this quest, all right? And the first one is, have any of you ever been hiking out in the mountains? Um, and in particular, has anybody gone out west and done some hiking out there? Um, I'm petrified of heights. So anytime I go on a hike, it's like I'm looking for the easy trail, not these kind of scary, hairy ones, right? Um, and it's, there's just something in me. My knees buckle when I see it. But I want you to picture kind of walking up one of these tight pathways and down to the right, 1,000-foot drop, you know, 2,000-foot, you're right on this precipice. And then, and then you might be kind of at a spot where you're in a pathway, a pass, and there's a drop-off to the left as well. Well, you got that word picture in mind. Spiritually, we're kind of on this pathway. But there's a drop-off to the right that's kind of dangerous for us, and there's one to the left. And the one on the right I would describe as basically thinking that I have to pursue a bunch of rules in order to be acceptable to God, a bunch of ways of living that is going to get me more favor with God. All right? And there's a fancy name for this, this kind of rule-oriented Christianity. It's called moralism. And it doesn't work. It doesn't lead to godliness. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, your rules do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, the rules you're subscribing to, are of no value to restrain your fleshly indulgence. In other words, rules don't work. Rules don't help you become more godly. On the other side of this pathway 
is the kind of opposite of the rule abider. This, this path, this kind of fall off, is the person that says, well, rules don't work, and Jesus loves me anyway, so I'm just going to live however I want. Freedom. All right, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and then I go to heaven, and so I can live however I want, and God's going to love me, accept me. Well, God's grace will love us unconditionally, and it's not about our performance, but taken to the extreme, it'll never lead to godliness. All right, it's not what God prescribes for us, and there's a fancy word for this worldview as well. It's called antinomianism, right? And so neither of these work. There's a pathway called the spiritual disciplines that God wants us to walk in. As we sow to the spirit, as we engage in these disciplines, it leads to a transformation of our very character. And so this is a real important thing. Now, the second kind of word picture I want to give you is I want you to imagine a coin. I, uh, imagine I got a coin in my hand here. And it's important that we understand that in our pursuit of spiritual growth, there's two sides to this coin. Now, the one side happens to be my favorite side. I'll start with that one. On this side of the coin, it says that God is taking complete responsibility for your and my spiritual growth. He's taking 100% responsibility. That's really good news. I like that. All right, and it's found in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. is a great verse that illustrates this. Um, Paul says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Now, sanctify is a fancy Christian term for helping you to grow, to look more and love more like Jesus. Grow in your spiritual growth, in your character, in your godliness. May he sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, here it comes. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Isn't that great? Who's going to do it? He is. he is. That's a promise you can take to the bank. All right? That's a great promise. Memorize that one. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will do it. God is taking complete responsibility for your spiritual growth. Now, the other side of the coin is just as important. God calls us to fully participate. He wants us to fully engage in the process with everything we've got. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, train yourself for the purpose of godliness, uh, the idea of training like an athlete. Um, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, Peter says, in your pursuit of godliness, make every effort. So we engage in the process of growing spiritually, but flip the coin, and I gotta remind myself all the time, otherwise I can fall into moralism real easily, that God is the one who's doing it. So here's what spiritual disciplines do for you and me. They're a means of grace. You see, we need not willpower, we need not self-effort, we need grace-driven effort. And spiritual disciplines connect us to the grace we need in the moment of decision so that we can step-by-step step walk with God. We need grace-driven effort. And so spiritual disciplines are a vital means by which we access and appropriate the, appropriate the grace of God to our lives. Does that make sense? And that's why they're so key for our spiritual development. That's why I love the series that we're in. And so each and every week, you're going to be learning a little bit more about the various spiritual disciplines. Today, we're going to be looking at 
baptism. Now, I know for some it may not be the most exciting. I get really pumped up about it, um, and you'll see why. I think it is one of the most exciting topics we can cover. And so we'll learn about that. Now, if you've had any church affiliation, and probably many of you come here with a previous church affiliation, um, you likely have some pretty ingrained thoughts about baptism. Um, because our tradition, I've found in the years I've been pastoring, actually tend to influence our views of baptism maybe even more than the scripture does sometimes. And so I'm going to ask you to look past your tradition. Now, I was raised in the Baptist tradition, and, uh, and so we named, or they named themselves Baptists, and so they think they've probably got that one figured out. After all, John the Baptist baptized Jesus, so I mean, they must have it, right? Um, and there's all kinds of different views out there, though. Is, you know, infant baptisms, do you sprinkle, do you wash, do you immerse, and what are the meanings of baptism? And I'm not going to chase all that this morning. I don't have enough time. Um, what I'd rather do is, because this is a really big deal around here, I want us all to kind of move past our tradition and let's look at the history of baptism and let's look at the scripture together and and, and let's let God show us uh, what does he have in mind when it comes to this thing called baptism. Now, if you don't have a church affiliation, in many ways you're you're in a a little bit more advantageous spot this morning uh, because you don't have that tradition influencing how you're thinking about this. So you can just kind of lean back and uh, decide for yourself uh, what makes sense to you as you listen in this morning. Now, let me tell you up front, here's here's my goal. Um, My goal today is if you're a Christian and you're here and you haven't been baptized, my goal today is that you would get that confidence and that excitement to say, yeah, you know what? This is what God wants for me. And you will take that step of baptism and and avail yourself of the opportunity we have next week to be baptized. Um, That's my prayer. Um, For the rest of us, if you are Christian here and you have been baptized, um, thanks for coming. We'll see you next week. No, no, there's something in here for you. Um, and, and I really, perhaps the best way I can illustrate this is, is think of a wedding. Um, when we go to a wedding, it's kind of on my mind. I'm really bummed that I'm going to miss our baptism next week because I'm going to be in Indiana performing the wedding for my niece. And uh, so, you know, I'd love to figure out how to fly back in time for the Nairobi Chapel uh, worship as well. That's, pretty, that's some of my favorite stuff right there. Um, but anyway, um, think of a wedding. Now, why do we go to a, we, we go to a wedding to celebrate and to just support and encourage our friends who are taking that step, our family members, our community comes together um, to bless and honor and to celebrate and have a party with the people that are getting married on that day. And so that's a really big part of any community life that we have and the start that they're having in their life together. But if we're willing to even go deeper, there's yet another thing that can occur. Uh, For those of us that are married, uh, if you can kind of lean in and listen, it can take you back to your wedding vows. It can take you back to the beginning of your relationship. And you can get fired up all over again. You can connect to those first things all over again. If you're not married and you're there, you can use that opportunity to think about the wedding that we have with Christ as his bride. And we can connect to those deeply, deeply powerful um, values that we all hold on to. And so it can be an opportunity. And so baptism provides that opportunity for us who are already baptized and followers of Christ. All right, well, let's begin.
by looking at the Bible, and let's look at where Jesus tells us to be baptized, okay? And this is not in your bulletin, so I'm going to read that uh, from the scriptures. It's found in Matthew 28, uh, verses 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them, and the context here is he has died, and he has risen from the dead, and he is up on a mountain with 500 of his followers that are listening to him say these words. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And so here we see that we are commanded by Christ to go and just baptize those who begin to be followers of Jesus. All right? And that's where we see it. And, and all Christians kind of agree at this point all right? that, that baptism is an important part. Um, it's something God's telling us all to do, this necessary step. Um, from there, it kind of gets crazy. Right? And again, I'm not going to chase all that down. Instead, what I want to do is I want to look at the history of baptism and kind of break it down a little bit and parse it out from the scriptures. So let's start with the word itself, baptism. Our New Testament, as most of you know, has, was written in the Greek language and it has been translated into various languages, in our case, English. And so in the translation process, when they encounter a word in the Greek language, they'll look for the similar word or the word of the exact same meaning in the English language. And so for example, uh, fruit is karpos, and so, karpos in Greek, oh, the word in English is fruit. Karpos, fruit. Um, hudor, in the Greek language, is water in the English language. And so, when they encounter that word, they translate it that way. Occasionally, they'll run into a word that there's really no good word in the English language uh, that captures the essence and the fullness of the meaning of the original word. And in that case... Baptism is one of those examples. And so they do this thing called transliteration. This is a transliterated word. And so what they do is they take the word in Greek and they translate each letter and create an English word. So baptism, baptizo, uh, we have beta, B, alpha, A, pi, P, tau, T, and so, and so on and so forth. And we get baptism. Right? And so that's called transliteration. And so the word means, it wasn't a very religious word in their cultural context. It actually was a very, very common word, and it means to wash or to plunge or to immerse or to soak, um, uh, to dip. And so it was kind of a word that was used very frequently. Um, there's um, actually a recipe found from way back in ancient times in, in Greek culture on how to make a pickle. And what you do is you, you take the, fruit, uh, the, uh, the, the vegetable, the cucumber, and you baptize it in boiling water, and then you pull it out, and you baptize it in vinegar. And when you've done baptizing, you got a pickle. All right? So it's kind of a very common word. The word they would use is baptizo, the cucumber. All right? And so... Um, it can also be translated wash. Um, we see that in the New Testament as well. Um, in Luke 11:38, it says, but the Pharisee was surprised and noticed that Jesus did not first baptize before the meal. 
Well, huh? we, we hear that because it's got religious connotation. It just means wash. And so they appropriately, um, in that case, interpreted the word to say wash. And so we see that it was a very common word in their culture. So when did this word take on the religious meaning that you and I associate with it? Well, it actually started with uh, the nation of Israel and the, um, their service and worship of God and Judaism. And I love how Kaylee describes the purpose of the nation of Israel from the Old Testament. She likes to say that they're the show people of God, and their responsibility was to show God to the world. We're followers of God, and therefore, this is how we live as a community. This is how we treat one another. This is how we worship. And their society, their community, as they were following God in obedience, became just the most powerful nation on the earth at their pinnacle under Solomon. And people would marvel at this nation of Israel. And of course, they would get there and they'd say, oh my goodness, this is just so different. Who is your God? And of course, they would respond, Yahweh. And he's not a God. He's the one true living God who made the heavens and the earth. And so people would see this and it's evidence of God and they would say, how can he become our God? And so the religious leaders of Israel, they had to figure this out. And so this isn't in the Torah, it's not in the Old Testament, but they came up with five things that you would need to do in order to become a follower of Yahweh. And those were circumcision if you're a male, uh, you were to participate in a covenantal meal. Um, in addition to that, you were to acknowledge the law of God and to say, I'm going to align my life and I'm going to live according to the revelation of God, the law of God. Um, in addition to that, that it would involve a sacrifice that they would offer to God. And then finally, there was a ceremonial washing that was done in private that was to illustrate and to symbolize that I'm washing away all my old commitments, all my old affiliations, all my reliance upon myself, and, and now I'm clean, and I'm now dedicated to Yahweh. I'm dedicated to him. And so they ended up calling this ceremony, this washing, a baptism, baptizo, as it was translated into the Greek language. So around 30 AD, we get this wild-eyed, crazy man, um, I say that tongue-in-cheek, who's out in the Judean wilderness, and he's living with animal skins for clothes, and he's eating wild locusts and honey. All right, has anybody seen Fear Factor where you eat the bugs? Uh, just as really gross. This was this guy's regular meal, right? And so... And he had a message that he was preaching and people were flocking to him and coming to him. And basically his message was repent. Um, who's this guy? John the Baptist, right? John. And he, his message was just this. God's about ready to do something brand new. And it's unique. And it's going to happen right in the midst, right now. This isn't far off in the future. This is imminent. God is going to do something new. And I know you think you're keeping the law and you're doing all the ceremonial washings and you're doing all the kind of right steps, but that's not good enough. You need to quit sinning and turn in your whole heart to him. You need to surrender everything you have in your heart to him. And he said, as, as kind of a step 
of this proclamation that you're making, come down into the water with me for a washing. And so the Jews, observing what was happening, uh, they, they actually came up with a term, um, and they gave him a nickname. They called him John the Washman, John the Baptist. And these people were being baptized by John the Washman. Right, and so that's kind of the history leading up to the point in time. And John's message included saying, one is coming who is greater than me. He recognized that he wasn't anything but a mouthpiece for the one who was to come. And he recognized that the Messiah was coming who's greater than I. I'm not even worthy to untie the laces of his sandals. And on this very, uh, very soon thereafter, in Matthew 3, in your bulletins, it records the interchange between Jesus and John and the day of Jesus' baptism. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him. And he said, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son with whom I love or whom I love and with him I am well pleased. And so here we have the record of Jesus's coming to John to be baptized. A couple of little things in here. Did you notice that John objected? Amen. <laughs> I need to be baptized by you. What's going on here? I'm not worthy. So he recognized the deity of Christ. He recognized that he was the Messiah and that we got this equation flipped around here. Right? Notice Jesus doesn't correct him and say, no, 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 John, I'm just like you. Let's go for this. Right? That's further evidence that it's true that Jesus is the son of God. What he says instead is John permit it for this time so that we can fulfill or so that uh, all righteousness may be fulfilled. That phrase, it's key to understand what's going on with baptism, all right? So let me break that down for you. The, the, what Jesus is saying, all righteousness to be fulfilled, is he's pointing, using this water baptism as a symbol to point to what was going to fulfill all righteousness in the eyes of God. Right? So this baptism was a picture of what was to come. And we know this for many reasons. One way to illustrate it is when Jesus was with two of his disciples, James and John, um, they were kind of trying to get on the inner circle and Jesus was talking about going to heaven and his throne in heaven. And they said, Jesus, when you get into heaven and you get on your throne, can we sit on your right and left? You know, I know we can't take the power seat, but can we be right next to the power seat? And Jesus said, uh, I have a baptism to undergo. Are you able to endure that? Now, he wasn't talking about getting cleaned up in the river of the Jordan with John. He was referring to the baptism into death, the immersion into the grave, where he would go and bear the sins of the world. And in that moment, the righteous, spotless Lamb of God who was not guilty, who did not deserve to die, willingly and lovingly took your and my place and received in himself the full extent of the wrath of God. You see, God can't wink a blind eye at sin. His wrath demands justice. And Jesus fully paid and absorbed the entire wrath of God for sin. 
going into the water is that picture. His death, his burial. Good news, you come out of the water. And as we know, three days later, Jesus rose from the dead in a demonstration of power and love and sovereignty and his greatness. He defeated for all time our enemies, sin and death. That all who come to him can be placed into his death, into his burial, and join him in his resurrection so that you and I, as followers of Christ, have new life that is eternal. What a powerful picture. What a powerful symbolism. The one who had no sin identified with us who had no right standing before God. The sinless lamb of God identified with us who had no righteousness before God. And in the greatest act of love ever took our place so that we might experience that life. That we might be made clean. That we might be washed in his sacrifice for us. I love that Jesus leads also by example. He's doing this because he knew he was going to institute this for his church. Every single one of us who puts our faith in Christ, the step he wants us to take is baptism. That's why my goal for you today is that if you've not been baptized and you're a follower of Christ, you have such a wonderful opportunity this coming week. It begins with baptism. It's not a condition of salvation. The salvation comes through our faith in Christ and what he did on the cross. It's a picture of salvation. But our baptism is evidence that we are genuine followers of him. It's not a condition of salvation. It's a picture of salvation, but it is evidence that we are followers of him. And so this day, this choice, this decision is both personal and public. And here's the three questions we ask. It's both personal, but it's also something we're saying publicly. The the first question is, like John, John the Baptist, we say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If that's you, you're ready for baptism. If you've already been baptized, it's a great opportunity to think through that again. The second question is that are you trusting him? Have you put your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins? Yeah, that's deeply personal. And we're making this public statement. And then is it your intent to follow him all the days of your life? We won't do that perfectly. Baptism is just the first step. But yeah, it's my intent to follow my Lord the rest of my life. Deeply personal decisions. But our faith, while personal, was never meant to be private. This is something God wants us to do and to do it publicly as a declaration to the world that all those things are true. Jesus is who he said he is. I'm gonna trust him for the forgiveness of my sins, not my moralism, not my freedom. I'm trusting him. And I'm gonna follow him with all I've got the rest of my life, not to earn salvation, but because I love him for what he's done for me. That's why we take this step of baptism. And for those of you that have been baptized, don't miss this opportunity like a wedding to go back to first things. This is a picture of sanctification. This is a picture of growing in Christ. This is a picture of your new life in Christ. We connect to the grace of God. We connect to the gospel. We connect to what he's done for us. 
And then as a matter of loving surrender and obedience, we do what he says and follow him. In this case, it's baptism. After baptism, it's a daily follow. We connect to his grace and then in humble surrender, by faith, we have the pattern of obedience.